everybody. This is Andres. Hello. And it is, and this is the second podcast from Resist Climate Change Divide, one of the International Falcon Movement's Socialist Education International's projects, supported by the European Youth Foundation by the Council of Europe. In this podcast, we'll be looking together at how the ongoing climate crisis intersects with all levels of our lives. We'll speak with experts, activists, policymakers, and many more looking for a deeper understanding of the historic, colonial, and systemic roots of climate change and discuss innovative solutions cutting across sectors. Today, we're going to listen to the interview that our lovely colleague Nadia uh, made, uh, I think, last uh, summer with two very interesting people. It's uh, One is Marios, he's uh, a volunteer and an activist in Extinction Rebellion in Belgium. And uh, we also have Sanka from the European Network Against Racism. And they will be having a conversation about how climate change intersects with um, colonial uh, history, with uh, racism, and of course, with racial justice as well. It's a really interesting interview, so I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Marius. I am with Extinction Rebellion in Belgium, and I mainly work on decolonizing uh, the movement and, in general, the society <laughs> and uh, the climate topics that we are addressing. Yeah. Hi, my name is Sanka. I work for the European Network Against Racism. As an individual, I've always been a, a decolonized activist uh, because I belong to a political family that uh, uh, wanted to re-establish the historical state of Sri Lanka because I'm a Sri Lankan originally. Uh, so decolonization I always worked on as a means to get there. I think one of the main issues in in terms of understanding how uh, how to get about uh, climate change and its implications is to um, understand the uh, the issue of universality of the Western modernity. Uh, we forget easily that uh, there are other civilizations other than the Western civilization. We forget easily there are other sciences and knowledge systems other than the Western science and knowledge systems. We simply uh, refuse to believe there's another worldview other than the Western uh, worldview. Um, there are so many discussions about this solution, that solution, how to mitigate, how to adapt. And at the end of the day, we forget that uh, China existed for uh, close to 8,000 years as a civilization without uh, destroying its environment completely and, and driving the planet, entire planet in, into ruin. Sri Lanka uh, existed as a, a nation state, actually, one of the two na historical nation states in history uh, that lasted 3,000 years without uh, destroying its environment. Um, Cambodia, uh, you know the, the historical site of Angkor Wat, uh, bordering Laos and Cambodian border. Uh, it used to be a city that is larger than the modern-day London, the modern-day city of London. Um, it was a huge me megapolis, a trade center. Uh, if you read the uh, courtiers from the uh, Chinese imperial court who visited there, they, what they have said, it's unbelievable. But yet they did not drive the entire peninsula into ruin. Uh, 
there are other models uh, of, of, of development and existence and the issue uh, how uh, the issue of humans uh, existing either side by side with nature or either on top of nature it's a big question we forget that uh, we we have a solution we have an alternative we can go back to our old roots and and uh, see ourselves as as part of nature in in against um, uh, exploitative boss of, of 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 our nature so this is this is a main uh, issue i think we need to understand clearly uh, because understanding the question correct is 50% of the answer yeah i i totally agree um and i think one of the main causes for that is also that we always talk about a climate crisis and when we think about climate we think about uh, CO2 and we think about uh, the heating world and rising sea levels um, which is uh, a problem that we are afraid of because Europe will, will have a certain problem um, while actually people are already fighting for decades to sustain their environments and when the environmental battle has been going on by activists all over the world and indigenous people and other communities and uh, changing the discourse to uh, a climate and ecological and social crisis would uh, take it away from like the numbers of CO2 in the air and would take it uh, to, to okay, actual communities are uh, collapsing, uh, people are dying because of mining, people are, uh, child, there's child labor because of our way of life and so on. And um, because of this climate discourse, uh, we don't look outside of Europe and we don't look at these existing um, uh, knowledge systems that you that you were talking about um, and I think uh, that is basically because we are relying a lot on science uh, and uh, as, as a belief system here and science as a like an objective way of thinking which is quite dangerous because historically it has been inherently racist for a lot of uh, a lot of occasions and we're doing that and, and we're not criticizing science I think because uh, we're afraid to give uh, the right-wing uh, politics ammunition, basically, to deny uh, science, but they are already doing that. So we should go beyond that taboo of talking about um, the subjectivity of, of science and about the political agenda that is always behind everything, basically, um, to, to break that political correctness and to start to have a, a real conversation uh, that in includes also the social side and uh, the things that you can't measure, basically, that are, uh, that are more human. Uh, I, I, I um, quite right, Maris. I, I know a philosopher, a mathematician in Sri Lanka who used to still actually call Western science is, is the new religion in Europe, which is actually quite true. People um, uh, use it as, as a religion in, in many ways without properly understanding, but by just believing because somebody uh, they think smarter or wiser says so. Um, there are, in terms of alternative knowledge systems, there are examples, clear examples of how human habitation can exist, existing, how there are clear examples of how humans can ex exist hand in hand with nature. Um, you just don't have to invent uh, the wheel again, you just have to learn from how Indian civilizations, uh, Indian kingdoms, uh, the communities developed, the Chinese, how they did it, how, how um, where I am from, Sri Lankans uh, used to do it. Um, we have um, uh, this system of small tanks, interconnected water catchment tanks um, that actually enrich the nature when the rain season is there. Then 
in the dry season it actually feed into the system so you have um, a cascade system which the United Nations Development Program called the most sustainable ecological management system the humankind have in ever developed. It includes between 36,000 to 42,000 small and large and uh, medium-sized lakes uh, built uh, in the course of 2,500 years. Um, but the science uh, of, of food production, of science of food security, uh, demanding for higher food efficiency in the 60s, 70s and 80s, build these concrete canals and concrete water reservoirs for hydropower with European money that uh, we had to hire European companies in return and end up paying again uh, six times the estimated cost, which the system completely destroyed the uh, original ecological management system. In one case, um, to build one giant concrete canal, they destroyed, I think, 230 plus uh, reservoirs, cascade reservoirs that were operational for thousands of years. So, in in terms of understanding knowledge, the knowledge is there. It's it's a matter of properly appreciating what is out there, what we used to do, and then recognizing it and then adopting it. I'm not saying we should go back to hundreds of years back. What I'm saying is uh, Western modernity is not the only modernity. There are other knowledge systems that we can learn and adopt and, and, and uh, sustain our human civilization on, on, on this planet Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are to continue uh, the predatory nature of our economic and social and political model as we have now, we will not be able to uh, sustain uh, human habitation on this planet or any other habitation for that mm -hmm. matter. Mm -hmm. So um, it's for the interest of Asians, Africans, Latin Americans, also for Europeans, the future European generations, even for the far right, uh, for their own future generations, mm -hmm. what I have to say is um, uh, try to realize uh, the facts on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, your modernity is not the only modernity. Your worldview is not the only worldview. Your science and your knowledge is not the only science and worldview and knowledge. So try to uh, um, uh, uh, break that dominance, break, help people uh, adopt their own solutions to their own conditions. Which is increasingly difficult because of displacement. Because of, because of displacement, people, and this is what we were just saying in the last one, because of displacement, people are forgetting, not forgetting, but like knowledge and science is being lost, you know, like, and I gave the example in the last interview about my family um, from, we're indigenous, we're from the Sahara and Narco, but we were displaced because of urbanization, because of capitalism, moved to the cities and now occupied we're being the again. Saharan territories? No, no, not the occupied Saharan territory, but like we're Amazia, so we're from this place called Eggs. And what's happened is because because of capitalism, because of demands, because of colonialism, had to move to the city. So my dad grew up in the city, my grandma grew up in the city, near the water. But now because Morocco is being such a popular tourist destination, hotels, etc. are being are being built. People are being displaced again to places that are with infertile lands, places far away from water sources, schools, hospitals, all of these things. And unfortunately, the knowledge is lost. Not lost, but the knowledge is the no we're we're losing our our knowledge because generations and generations and generations are being forced to be moved because of things like dams, right? Yes, yes. You know, like these dams that were built, they, they, they displace yes. a lot of people. They displace, uh, in, in some cases in Sri Lanka, uh, settlements that were historically important and that lasted for three, four thousand years were displaced because of uh, some of these hydropower dams. Um, in terms of the lo losing of, of this knowledge, the dominance of the Western knowledge system, the Western education, have displaced 
the indigenous understanding of nature mm -hmm. from the local population, the local indigenous population. For example, um, Sri Lankan farmers, um, this was done in different ways in India, China, all over Africa also. Um, um, Sri Lankan farmers used to uh, select the time of the year to plant based on the moon calendar. They knew exactly what day to uh, plant. For, just to give you an example, if you have two sides of a mount uh, that you live in, one side is east, one side is west, you will plant uh, flowers that give a red color on the east because that is the best uh, direction the flowers would get the uh, red radiation from the sun. So people actually knew how to manage the energy of the sun, how to manage uh, the, the water, how to manage the soil mm -hmm. without actually destroying it. Because humans are destructive. Our, our existence is, is going to damage and disturb uh, nature itself. So it's not that we have to protect nature as an external entity. It's that we have to learn how to live together, live in it as a part of it. Because there's a difference between disturbance and destruction. Yes, yes. And we need to we need to understand that distinction. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. And and what, what the Sri Lankans, what the Chinese, what the Indians did for millenniums is to uh, um, fine-tune the art of coexistence. Um, um, they knew the uh, importance of energy consumption. They were mechanized people, mm -hmm. not mechanized as we are today. But it's it's. But where it, did they get the knowledge from? Today? Yeah. Where did science get the yeah. knowledge from? Where did maths get the knowledge yes. from? Yes. Um, forget that. The world's oldest universities that uh, developed modern concept of uh, mathematics and science. They were all Sorry. in South Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that people didn't have the capacity to uh, uh, go towards uh, industrial revolution of some kind. They had, but they didn't actually see it as a just thing to do because they never saw it as a as a predator of nature. They saw it as part of nature. Mm -hmm. So this is this is the ultimate solution for climate change or to many other questions of that uh, matter. Um, to see that we are part, not on top. We are not predators. We are not on top of our food chain. The world is not created for our benefit. It is not created for us, period. We are part of it. I think that also has to do a lot with the, the disconnection that we have with nature in general because only if you look at our food we're not connected to the season we're not connected to the, all, all of this knowledge that you're describing like for example your body cannot even take certain vitamins from certain fruits or vegetables in a certain season because nature is designed so smart that if you take that uh, fruit that is growing in that period of time it will absorb it otherwise it won't but we are importing mangoes from the other side of the world and and pineapples and I don't know what uh, and we're thinking that it's beneficial for our bodies but actually not and I think it has a lot to do with the industrialization of food and the fact that we don't actually have connection to that anymore I mean the, the majority of people would live in a rural area and would have a very strong connection with farming and uh, since the industrialization, I mean, now you go to the supermarket, you see a piece of beef and you don't have a clue what that means. You don't have a clue what it means to, to kill an animal. You don't have a, and, and I think that distance that we have from our food production, that distance that we have uh, from many products. I mean, uh, if, I, if I look around this room, uh, listeners don't know what this room looks like, but it's full of stuff. Um, you don't know how that stuff is produced. So 
you don't know what the impact of that thing is that you're using and therefore you just can can disconnect from it and the moment that we i think like even spiritually and and bodily start to engage with nature again um then and and we find back that that connection we get more sensitive and we will also at one point um want to be more aware and and want to start looking for what is right and what is healthy and what is sustainable for us as society uh, on a social level on a health level and so on so um i think that is something that's not highlighted a lot but this like spiritual awakening or philosophical ideological however you want to call it is, is super important on an individual level i'll give you a personal um, um i'm not a personal experience as such but a sri lankan experience um now um for few decades um, multinational fertilizer and agrochemical companies are promoting their products on um, to extreme level of use on paddy fields because sri lanka's main di- uh, dietary uh, composite is 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 rice um so you need phosphorus and potassium and all this and that for good agriculture uh ancient times um people used to have this giant tree in paddy fields plenty of them it's called me it's huge i also have a smaller version of this tree in my garden i have uh, planted in sri lanka and and the fruit of this tree is get um, is very delicious for the bats and bats come in thousands to eat the fruit of this tree and what happened people didn't even realize that this was planted intentionally hundreds of years ago and they cut it down on 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 the agricultural department instructions that were uh, uh, getting guided by world bank and the international monetary fund and international rice research center and this and that you can i mean name hundreds of mega multinational uh, institutions and organizations who gave such advice and uh, when the tree get cut the bat didn't come and when the bats didn't come bat Uh, the the feces of bats that used to drop onto the paddy fields also disappeared and later only they realized the bat feces had the highest concentration of um, uh, uh, minerals such as potassium that is essential for the paddy fields it's one of the four elements uh, four essential core elements for a paddy field um, farm so there are ways that we can manage high efficient levels of production without having to industrialize without having to uh, sustain our base base ourselves there are ways there are ways to sustain ourselves without having to industrialize and also without having ourselves to be a part of a non-stop marathon that keep having to produce more and more fertilizer keep having to produce more and more yield it it doesn't have to be like this it doesn't have to be like this every year where i come from sri lanka more than 30% of the produce agricultural produce get destroyed by climate implications if we did not dislodge our traditional agriculture in the 60s we would have the indigenous seed types that is drought resistant or flood resistant and we would not have to do this today the government have to invent knowledge again rediscover our own ancient knowledge that we ourselves actually had to ditch based on international organizations that were working on a neo colonial agenda 
not very far behind mm -hmm. uh, to bring back that resilience, to bring back that climate resilience into our farming, um, in, into our agriculture. So we can manage the impacts um, of climate change. Sri Lanka is, I think, the most affected island in the world on climate mm -hmm. change. The worst one. Mm -hmm. And you know where these international institutions who made these recommendations got their knowledge from? They science. all... They, 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 in they the all, name of science. Yes, yes. Science that we so blindly trust. They, they all got... They, they all got their... Uh, basis on some kind of a science or th that kind of science, whatever it is. Um, some call it science, I sometimes call it pseudoscience. Um, <laughs> um, any science that advocates um, a predatory position of humans over nature is for me is, is not a science that is based on truth. It's a science that is based on a religious worldview in, in, a, in a way uh, because after all, Western science today in, in, uh, act as a religion in Europe. Uh, also in North America, you, you cannot even question the moral basis of science in many ways. We are scared to question it because, like you said, Maris, again earlier, uh, the far, we are scared that the far right would uh, take it up. Mm. I mean, I don't think we have to be scared of far right. Far right is actually essentially the biggest threat the European uh, community faces um, uh, in, in the long term um, but uh, being scared of them is not part of the solution in, in trying to find uh, solutions for our global and European problems. Yeah, I agree and actually I, I also think that we are also talking too much about left and right like in, in the political system we have left, right and centrists but uh, even even the, the so-called left uh, parties in most Western European countries, the Social Democrats, uh, also um, and and most socialistic parties, they are operating within the same capitalistic system that counts and operates within a frame of uh, the constant accumulation of money and 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 wealth and and constant growth. And for me, uh, a that's completely unsustainable but also it supports uh, eco-fascism because it means that okay um, we need to keep what we have and, and let it grow therefore we cannot have more migrants coming into our uh, borders so we close the borders at Turkey we close the borders at the Greek islands we close the borders uh, in Italy and, and Spain and uh, we let thousands and thousands and thousands die in the Mediterranean Sea and we let uh, even more people uh, be in completely inhumane conditions uh, in refugee camps where there are uh, completely unsustainable conditions and where people don't have uh, proper shelter, where people don't have uh, proper food and so on. And so, and, and, and I've seen many of these things uh, happening from, from close by, even also here in Brussels. And, and these climate refugees uh, and other refugees are mostly um, a direct result of uh, neo-colonial and, and imperialistic uh, mechanisms imposed by the West on the world in uh, a lot of Arabic countries, in a lot of uh, where, where we extract oil uh, and create wars, in a lot of uh, uh, post-sub-Saharan uh, uh, countries, uh, of course, colonial times, um, and, and Latin America and so on. And, and all these things have to be connected in order for us to get a deep understanding of what we're actually fighting. Because if we're constantly talking about one little smart, uh, small part 
of the problem and we zoom in too much, then we're going to like fix uh, a small stain on the uh, on the car seat instead of looking at the engine, mm -hmm. uh, and and that is very very dangerous because then we think, ah, oh, we did well, we have clean air now, and we have solar panels, and we have this, and we have that, uh, while we continue mining and uh, extracting oil and and all that stuff. And there's a huge greenwashing campaign uh, from multinationals and governments. Uh, there, there was a, a disastrous uh, article this week um, about BP going to uh, Belgian high schools and uh, like with two engineers going into classrooms under a youth program and telling them about how they are working on sustainability to the youth and uh, inviting them to join an engineering camp which is completely sponsored and organized by BP. And therefore the youth grows up with the idea that BP is a green company, which is of course completely absurd because they're one of the biggest polluters in the last centuries. So. Uh, all these things are, are so problematic and, and the way that we look at these green policies are so problematic that we have to connect all of these things, zoom out and address all things equally because otherwise uh, then, then we're... I cannot uh, use the word that I want to use right now. But, fudged. Uh, uh, <laughs> fudged, yeah. <thank> you. <laughs> I think um, Maris also to a certain extent um, we do need to have a transitional period where the capitalistic system we are living, we need certain reforms as a transitional approach. Mm. That I am personally, uh, in my personal opinion, I don't deny it. I don't deny the requirement for it. I don't deny um, the requirement of, of the existing industry to transform itself from high carbon intensive uh, format to a low carbon intensive format. I don't deny the digitization, I don't deny artificial intelligence. But what I do not want to see as a person of color is that we actually avoid ourselves or prevent ourselves from seeing the end goal. All these solutions that most of these European countries are proposing, most of the scientists are talking, most of the self-proclaimed activists are talking, are short-term solutions, but the long-term solution is the system change. What uh, the realization of of um, uh, realization of uh, growth not being able to sustain human civilizations all over the world is yet to um, it's it's let's say it's quite far away for most of the people. Mm. They 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 are not there yet. So I think. While we talk of all these nice new green deals and that deal or this deal or this foreign policy or new climate conscious external um, uh, relations or international development policy, nice words, I mean, they are also very well printed in this nice paper bundles, but they are meaningless unless there are unconditional technological and financial transfers to people who need to adapt to climate change, who need to mitigate uh, the, their environmental footprint. And unless there are meaningful infrastructure in terms of development tools, in terms of financial aid, to develop indigenous knowledge systems, bring them back into life, develop our own understanding at local level in addressing them, building their resilience, 
recognizing that uh, there are other forms of existing other than uh, existing as a um, parasite on nature. Uh, I, without doing that, everything else, in my opinion, is actually meaningless because having an electric car or a solar panel is not going to cut the deal. It's it's not the big deal. I mean, that would actually make us feel good. That will make us nothing more than feel good as you know these people who go as saviors to a lot of countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America who want to save people there and, and come back and post a selfie and feel good about it. Um, people can continue to feel good as long as as long as um, we collectively move towards uh, a more direct and more meaningful end. Yeah. It, it, it's meaningless. I mean, feel good activities, fine. But that's not the end goal. That cannot be the solution ever. The, the, it is not the solution. The solution is also within us. It, we don't have to invent the wheel again, as I said before. Yeah, so I would really like to ask you a question because uh, within Extinction Rebellion, obviously we're striving for system change and uh, that also means a democratic reform and we're constantly uh, talking about uh, citizens' assemblies, which means for people who don't know, uh, a representation, uh, a random representation of the population um, being advised from all corners of society, all social classes, uh, uh, cultural backgrounds, ages, uh, genders and so on. And um, to have these people um, go through deliberative processes and make decisions on uh, climate, uh, climate issues, ecological issues, social issues, um, so that uh, we kind of bypass the corruption and we, we bypass the uh, connection between uh, party politics and uh, um, the political agenda that they have for a long term and the connection that they have with multinationals and fossil fuel industries and, and so on and so on. And I would be really interested to, to see your perspective on uh, democratic reforms or citizens' assemblies. I, I don't know if you're... I am actually quite familiar with it. Um, 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 as a, a person who have actually tried to understand what democracy means all over the world for some time, when I have time for this, um, I find it quite disturbing that many well-to-do countries, let's say, uh, weaponize democracy, weaponize human rights in order to justify um, their geopolitical interests. They use it as a spearhead into weakening a target region or target community or a target uh, country mm. of their choice. And we have seen this worldwide. Uh, let it be liberation of people from a dictatorship to uh, uh, giving them access to democracy I mean, their argument is often ridiculous as bombing for democracy, at, as it sounds. Mm. Um, for me, democracy is not an alien concept as a South Asia, because uh, its first origins is actually in South Asia, little longer before that uh, the famous Greek experiment was put in place. Um, uh, Sri Lanka, as a Sri Lankan, I'm also um, quite happy to learn at one point in my life the the history of, of the village uh, assembly 
uh, of, uh, that we had. It was the oldest democratic uh, institution in history. It is the longest running one until British disbanded it in mid-1800s uh, effectively. Uh, until then, the village affairs was decided by the village community, mm -hmm. not by the elder men or some elite family, but, but the community as a whole. They would elite, uh, elect their own uh, leader or, or their own council and they would uh, uh, ha ha have their say. Uh, there is more examples in India. There's a, um, a region run by, a, uh, in modern terms, we call them a dynasty, but they're not an aristocratic dynasty called Lichavi. They, they say they rule by consensus. So the legacy of democracy, um, we have actually damaged its potential by uh, putting it to the account of Western modernity. It is not a legacy of Western modernity itself. We think it is because the Western world we have taught us everything originated from from Europe. Um, for me, it is not. Uh, so I firmly believe in the historical legacy and this its success story of supporting uh, uh, really advanced urban or non-urban civilizations uh, that came into be in um, uh, South Asia and East Asia and Central Asia, uh, be it from modern day Beijing. Uh, or Cambodia's Angkor Wat or Sri Lanka's Anuradhapura or, or in India's there's hundreds of cities like this. I can't even re start to put a list for you. It's that long. Um, the, under, the, the requirement of democracy or citizens rule is to support the community in managing their own affairs. And there are plenty of examples historically that we can draw from and we can modernize it without westernizing them into meeting the modern needs of people's um, participation in decision making. It could be in small scale, in small uh, local localities, it could be regional or national. What has gotten wrong into us is that we, uh, majority of the world, uh, have adopted the, um, the Westminster system from British or some other French system or some other um, German system. The German system is the latest trend. Uh, um, anyway, so this understanding need to be challenged that uh, democracy is, is not a domain of the Western imperialism. It's not a domain of the Western neo-imperialism. It's not a good legacy of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Democracy have nothing to do with capitalism. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with any politics in, in modern day. It has much older roots. Mm -hmm. There are stories I grew up with, kings, I mean we call them kings but in fact they are not kings, they are elected rulers who ruled on consensus. Mm -hmm. um, I mean I can give you plenty of folk stories how, how different dynasties and how different traditions, how different practices started in different countries of South Asia. Mm -hmm. So I think in using democracy as a, as a tool to support communities, uh, to uh, support them to flourish their existence as humans, part of nature, should start from the understanding that they have a legacy themselves. Mm -hmm. Unless we do that, it will be always an alien concept. Democracy as a modern format, we have 
done the we have done the strategic mistake of um, debiting it to the Western account so to too much. So people actually see it as an alien concept all over Middle East, all over South Asia, all over all over China. People see it as an alien concept. People see it as, as a tool of Western modernity mm. and that should be broken. What, what I find very interesting in this consensus way of democracy, what you're talking about, is the, the case of Taiwan now, who, who kind of uh, make, made themselves independent from, from China and are self-ruling. And uh, they have a digital minister now, Audrey Tang. I don't know if you are uh, familiar. Not yet familiar. Okay, well, well, it's, it's a super, super progressive uh, um, uh, government. And... Uh, uh, she's a, a transgender uh, minister who is working a lot on uh, uh, equality and so on. And she uses a lot of digital uh, tools, uh, like modernized, what, this is what you were saying, to find consensus. So she, she goes to indigenous communities who uh, don't have ac access to digital platforms and talks to them. She invites people to her office. But also she uses digital tools to find consensus that sometimes go up to 97%, which is, of course, completely crazy if you look at a, at a population of uh, several million people, that so many people can uh, have a consensus about something. And the philosophy behind it, uh, what she's saying is, um, hey, uh, maybe we should focus less on the things we disagree on, because these are like the extremely polarizing issues and focus on the things that we all agree on, which is we all want public uh, health to be good. We all want a good education. We all want good infrastructure. We all want the environment to be healthy and so on. And if we start to agree on those things, then uh, we start to fight less actually. And we start to come to uh, very um, uh, constructive uh, um, feedback and systems and very constructive progressive measures. So that's, uh, I, I just wanted to add that to what you were saying because I found it extremely. Uh, it's in extremely interesting. Aspiring. Actually, I didn't know the the, the nitty gritty details about it before, mm. uh, but I do have a lot of friends in Taiwan. Um, I would like to end by saying one yeah. one sentence. Actually, um, a sense of of consensus based democracy, as historically, it stands in in my own understanding is to recognize that we are not all same, we are different, and to accept the other person's right to be different, and still at the same time understand that we are all together in this. Today, the democracy is majority versus minority. Yeah. And that need to be broken into building a system building a society that we can politically as well as socially recognize we all are equal, all are different and our differences is what makes us unique, what makes us strong. And uh, if we understand that we all have the right to be different, then I don't think uh, the uniformity we demand of the world population does would not be justified any longer. And it would actually um, help us to address the um, issues of implementing uniform solutions for issues like climate change. Well, hello back. I think, uh, well, thank you a lot, Nadia. Thank you, Myers, and thank you, Sanka. It was a very, very interesting uh, conversation, I think. What do you think it is? 
it was a very good conversation, Andres. Yes, I I am originally from from Spain. Uh, it is here. It's also from Catalonia. So we have, of course, a very European biased uh, background. But it's really interesting to listen to like other other perspectives uh, from other parts of the world. No, sometimes we think. Uh, the European uh, ecology is the only ecology that exists. But it was really interesting to listen to, uh, to examples from China, from Sri Lanka, from Cambodia. It's really interesting, I think. And we will be, I think, uh, listening to more on that in the following yes. episodes, yes? Yes, it is correct. Um, we will talk uh, with Jorge is from Chile, from the organization Integración Absoluta, and Averses participant. And he will tell us about his experience uh, with climate change in Chile. So it will be a very, very good conversation. Looking forward to it. Um, also, if you're uh, listening to this and you want to send us your comments, your thoughts, of course, feel free to share and... and uh, like our podcast but can contact us anytime to propose new topics if you want to participate in the podcast or if there's anything that you want to for us to 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 talk Check about out. we will be happy so i think this uh, conversation was a very meaningful one we will leave it for today like this but looking forward to the next time yes thank you very much thank you This podcast is brought to you by the International Falcon Movement Socialist Education International, supported by the European Youth Foundation by the Council of Europe.